the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com. You can find Feminist Coffee Hour on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Uh, we are at femcoffeepod on Twitter, and you can email us at feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so on patreon.com slash feministcoffeehour. I'm Karen. And I'm Elizabeth. And today we have a very special guest. Dr. Freitas, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'm Donna Freitas, and I'm a lifelong feminist, and uh, I'm a professor uh, of creative writing at Adelphi um, on Long Island at the moment. And I'll just say that I don't know what I would do without feminism and gender studies in my life. So today we're going to talk about uh, your book, Consent, which uh, came out in August. And I had the chance to read it, and it was completely heartbreaking. And I just was wondering if you could start out by telling us about this book and why you chose to share it and why you chose to share it now in 2019. Well, the book is about uh, a pretty long period for me during graduate school when my um, graduate advisor, so a member of the faculty who was the head of my program at the time, began stalking me or he became obsessed with me. And so the book is looking at that time in my life and trying to understand why what happened happened, why it took me so long to speak out, um, and also just really trying to think about the consequences of that period of my life on my career, um, but also to use the career that I ended up developing, which is I've done a lot of speaking for the last 15 years on um, sex on campus and Title IX and sexual harassment, and sexual assault. And that's been my, my research and my work. And so I just decided to really sort of wear two hats, be the person I was during graduate school and tell that story, but also then, you know, really look at that story of mine from the place where I stand now, which is as someone who has some authority on this topic and try to analyze consent in that relationship and really open up a, some maybe some new avenues about consent in our culture. I thought that was an interesting title for your story, because to me, the first thing I thought was, of course, no one can consent to be stalked. No one has an abuser that says, hey, can I gaslight you and, and can I stalk you? So uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that title and, and, and how it relates to, to these issues. Part of what made me start that book is because I was writing a book about college campuses and, and Title IX, and it's actually called Consent on Campus, a manifesto, and it's definitely a manifesto. And when I was writing that book, I was thinking a lot about two things. One, how so much of the argument I was making about consent, I wouldn't have been able to make without my personal experience, which is part of what made me want to write the memoir. But also that I think often in our conversations about consent in the workplace or at a university, you know, we try to simplify it as though it's, you know, amounts to yes means yes or no means no, and, and that's it, you know, because, of course, we just want to be able to check off the box and say we did the education and everybody knows now how, what, what's involved here. And 
you know, I was thinking about how, no, it's way, way more complex than that, because what does it even mean to be in a consensual relationship? There's all kinds of consensual relationships. And when I say that, you know, I started out in a consensual relationship with my professor. I wasn't in a sexual relationship with him. I mean, consensual in the sense that I was happy to be his student. I was thrilled he was my advisor. And I really wanted to look at how in the world do you go from a place, you know, with someone you know, respect and admire to a place where you're running away from this person, you know, and then how in the world do you say no to a person who like holds your future in his hands? And, you know, we are, for example, teaching undergraduates, you know, it's important we're having this conversation, but, you know, we're teaching them like, okay, you know, if a professor is inappropriate with you, you need to come to us. You need to tell that person no. And, it doesn't seem to me that people fully understand what you're asking of those undergraduates when there's a huge power differential. You know, when we've seen in our culture, someone is an assistant and their boss is one of the most powerful men in the media. What in the world does it mean to stand up to that person? And what if no one believes you? What if you lose your job? You know, and I think it's an enormous ask, but it's also just for me, it took me forever to go from that place of sheer admiration and like gratitude that this person paid attention to me to that place where I was like, get away from me. Like, I need you to go away where I was willing to risk everything, you know, because he wouldn't get out of my life. And so I really wanted to look at that shift in the book. And um, that's that's why I called it consent. Because of the like layers of complexity to your kind of ability to have agency in this situation? Yeah, just I wanted to trace the shift of just how hard it was for me to go from, you know, I think you're amazing to I think this is the worst thing that's ever happened to me. You need to get out of my life. I mean, it took me a couple of years. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I worry that we're afraid to have those really hard conversations in our culture about what, a, like, we, we want to teach students in an one hour or less or in some sort of human resources, like, tutorial that consent is no, you know, or consent is yes. And, you know, I, I think it's much more complicated than that. And, you know, and I also, I do all this work about with sex on campus in general. And, of course, we all know that the most likely person to assault you is the person you know. You know, so right there, if it's the person you know, consent is just sort of the foundation of that relationship. You're in a relationship with them. And so somehow over the course of an evening or over the course of a relationship, you have to make that shift from this is something I want to, whoa, this is something I don't want. And somehow because you're the person saying no, it's on you to make the other person make that shift. I really worry that we're reducing the conversation or we're just oversimplifying the conversation. And I want us to, to think long and hard about what we're asking of people when they do start out in these you know, relationships that are consensual or when there is this big power differential. If someone's listening to our show right now and they uh, are in a situation where they find themselves being harassed or stalked, uh, what would you want them to know? That they're not the only one, I think, first and foremost. Um, but I, I think the hardest thing to do is to go from being silent to speaking to someone. And 
I think for me, the first step was finding someone I really trusted to talk to about it. And it took me forever to do it because I was so afraid to speak up. And I wish I had done it sooner, but what happened was what happened. And I think about how lucky I was that I chose this person I truly trusted because then I wasn't alone, but also I had, suddenly I had an advocate. I didn't tell, you know, a school official. That was not the first person I told. And I'm so glad that I told a friend instead, because I think often one of the things that we don't realize is that you know, the institutions we work for or where we go to school are not always our advocates and they're often not our advocates. And so I think telling that person you truly trust who doesn't have a vested interest in not believing you or not, you know, not being an advocate is a really important step. And then you're, you're not alone in it. And then you have someone with whom you can, you know, really make a decision about what's next. And so I would say those two things, first and foremost, know that you're not alone. There's so many people who experience these things, unfortunately, but also like find that advocate for yourself, that that should be your number one priority. One of the things that that I think was resonant with people about this was the sense that, like my interpretation of the sense is the sense that women can't liberate themselves by themselves against systems of oppression. And this story is just such a perfect example of no matter how liberated you are, if the system you're under is not, you actually don't have the power to free yourself. I mean, one of the great ironies, I think, of my my story is that you know, in, in graduate school, I was studying gender studies, you know, and so I had all the resources a woman could possibly have at my fingertips. Like I knew all the language, I knew all the arguments. I could give you all of the reasons why what was happening to me was wrong, unacceptable. Like I could do it as a in my position as a graduate student or in my position as a student advocate, because I was working in student affairs at the time. And, you know, I knew all of these things rationally. Um, I knew things like um, just because I dressed a certain way or just because I was really friendly or just because I was outgoing with my professors. Like this doesn't mean that then my you know professors or someone had the right to uh, be inappropriate with me. Like I knew all of these things, except it didn't change the fact that all of those things filled me with just paralyzing self-doubt. So, you know, I had these two voices in my head and, you know, there was the voice of you have done nothing wrong. This is not your fault. Like, you know, I could make all these arguments, but then there was this other voice, which was so powerful, which was the one that you know, one most of the time. And that was the one, you know, that kept saying to my, you know, to myself or, you know, Donna, what did you do? Like, what did you do to get this man's attention? Like, what did you, like, why did you dress this way? Why do you have to wear those high heel boots? Like when you go to class, like, don't you know any better? Like, I just had this voice and then I feared, okay, well, you know, what do other people think of me? What happens if I come forward? And they're like, oh, well, don't dress like that if you don't want your professor to become obsessed with you. Or, I mean, I, that voice was very um, powerful. And, you know, I think all the time about how 
you know, here I am and I'm this gender studies person and I still have that voice. And I know that's, that's the voice that scares me the most. And that's the voice that scares me the most for all of my students and the young women that I talk to all the time, because even, you know, we can be the most educated gender studies person in the universe, but we still live in a patriarchal culture that gives us all of those other voices that drown out that one that we know is right, you know, from, from really convincing us what truly is. So, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the role of religion and what happened to you. And if you think that your case would have been handled differently if it was at either a public university or a private secular university. No. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, cause you know, I, I do all this work about title nine on campus and, mm-hmm. You know, before 2011, when the Obama administration really put their foot down about um, universities in Title IX, and even after that, you know, universities have been resisting, really contending with sexual assault and sexual harassment on campus forever. Before 2011, I would spend all this time when I would visit campuses to talk about my research, saying, we have to talk about this issue. And people were like, no, like, we don't want to deal with it. So there was a lot of resistance, I think, to the conversation. So... I think most institutions would have reacted the same way. However, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Like, who knew? So the person who became obsessed with me and stalked me was a Catholic priest. And this happened well before the abuse scandal broke. What I didn't know at the time and what no one knew at the time with regard to Catholic priests was that any sort of Catholic institution, you know, be that a diocese or, you know, a university, they had an M.O., for like, you know, taking care of their priests who were abusive. One of the things that was really chilling to me last year was when all the articles came out about Pennsylvania and all the abusive priests in Pennsylvania. I remember the New York Times, they published this little sidebar in one of their big articles about it that talked about the MO of the Catholic Church, of how they hid their priests and exactly what they told victims when they came forward. And I read it and I thought, oh my gosh, like that is literally like line for line what they did with me. You know, there are moments when I haven't really thought of myself as a victim in the abuse scandal, even though I, I know that I technically am. But in that moment, I think it was probably one of the first moments where I really just had to contend with like, wow, like they knew what they were doing. They knew exactly how to brush me under the rug and, you know, have no consequences happen to this person. So I think, unfortunately, at the time, because this person was a priest, the people I was dealing with were extra educated in how to make me go away. I'm just kind of sitting with the, the weight of that, that there, there really was this entire system put in place specifically to disempower you and other people who may have found themselves in your situation and that no amount of gender studies education is going to interfere with that system. One of the things that happened when I was going through this and when I finally told my institution and they, you know, they just started this, the machine of brushing me under the rug and the whole situation and advocating for this man is that, you know, I really believed, especially because by the time I came forward, I just had like mountains of evidence (laughs) because I had so many letters from this person and gifts and And then I had started to open the letters and I realized some of them were like love poems. And, you know, like I was like, oh, gosh. So I I had all of this evidence. And so I really believed that 
they were going to try to help me. And like, I, I really went crazy. They like drove me crazy. They made me feel like a crazy person. And I sit there and I think about who I was back then and, you know, the toll it took on me. And it's such a terrible thing to do to someone who's already so vulnerable. And, you know, they made me vulnerable for years because of it. And, you know, it took me so long to come back from that experience. I still am vulnerable to it in so many ways. It's so overwhelming sometimes to think how much the odds can be stocked against you. And, you know, the people who you think are going to help you suddenly become the people who hurt you the most. And I had a friend, um, she's actually the the psychologist that I talk about in the book who figured out I had PTSD. After she read the memoir, we were talking about it. And she said, you know, I think one of the things that this man and this experience took from you, like one of the worst things that it took from you was your ability to have faith or to believe in your own perception, your own ability to perceive what was going on. And I've thought about that. It's echoed in my head ever since she said it, because I think that is true, because they you know, sowed this incredible self-doubt in me, and it's still there. I'm currently a, a doctoral student, and um, I'm in a program where you can change advisors, uh, that you're like a student of the program, not a student of your advisor. I would never change advisors because my advisor is incredible, but I see how even subtle ways of, of not fully supporting your advisee have an impact on the well-being of students in a program and certain students more than others or differently than others it's not always the same but the idea not only not being supported but amazed that you you made it through you know <laughs> like I think that that I mean I, I kind of just also want to sit with the your resilience in that I don't know that I felt resilient <laughs> so um, can I ask what you're studying uh clinical psychology Oh, nice. Um, I love it. <laughs> um, I really didn't feel resilient. I think mostly what I wanted was to deny that it ever happened. I sort of couldn't believe that it happened at the time. Like, it just felt like this weird, messed up thing, <laughs> you know, that, and I just wanted to put it behind me as though it didn't happen at all. And I wish I had gone to therapy early. It, earlier. It took me a long time to finally go to therapy because it took me a long time to realize how much this experience traumatized me because I didn't want it to have traumatized me. Like I wanted to just walk away from it. Like once the behavior stopped, I just believed that the like what you were supposed to do was like walk away and like move on. And I really didn't know how much it was going to affect my future. And, you know, part of that memoir is me grieving. Like one of the things that I realized when I was um, writing it was, you know, or it forced me to face the fact that this man and this experience cost me a lot. It was so hard for me to face that because it made me feel like he won you know, that he was going to win the rest of his life or like the rest of my life, that there was, you know, he changed my brain. In many ways, I ran away from my field. I'm not in the field that I was in when I, you know, got my PhD. I mean, I am in some ways, but I'm also not. 
I love my career, but it's not the career I thought I would have. And it was really hard for me to face how much he affected my life. Like it was incredibly sad and made me really angry. And like what I really want for myself is to be able to say like, oh, that's over. Like he didn't win, you know, like he didn't affect my life. And so you know, that part is really hard to accept. But I really think of, like, I think of those years when I was in denial and before my very dear friend, who is a psychologist, figured out I had PTSD. I thought I was crazy. And it wasn't until she had that conversation with me and I started going to therapy that I began to unpack what was happening and that I began to be able to move forward. So, yeah, I don't know. Like, thank you for calling me resilient, but... (laughs) I didn't feel very resilient. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting because I think of like the things that that are in your story that I think of as resilient are you did what you had to do to get through and you did get through and you made a career for yourself regardless of whether it's in the same field. And I think what we what you were describing as like oh I should just get over it or he's one is like kind of how we have this cultural picture of what resilience is but I think that you've managed to tell your story uh that you've managed to get yourself into therapy and identify what's going on with you and how it affects you to me that that is what feels like resilience so some of the resilience narratives that we have are really distorting in that way. So I, that's what I mean when I say resilience. And I don't, I don't mean to take away your experience of feeling like your agency was ripped away from you, your sanity was ripped away from you, because I think that's such a, an integral part of what is traumatizing about this. Well, thank you for saying that. You know, I've, I've thought so much about me too, for all sorts of obvious reasons. But, you know, I've never claimed me too. Like I've never actually publicly sort of made that claim. And I've thought so much about why. And I think it's because of sort of what you were just talking about. Like in the sense that I I think so much of me too has rested on, you know, I, I have that image of like, you know, the woman standing on the stage with her fist raised in the air as like, I have triumphed, you know, and I I know it's more complicated than that, but that is in many ways, one of the lasting images, you know, that we have. And this idea that like, you can say me too, and it almost like moves you from one space into another, from like victim into survivor. And I know I'm a survivor, survivor, but I also... I know how much I'm still a victim to this experience. And I'm both, I think I will always be both to a degree. And the space in which I dwell after this is really complicated. And I think we have a desire for obvious reasons to uncomplicate this experience because we want women to be survivors. Like we don't want them to still feel the effects of these experiences because it is tragic that so many of us are able to claim me too. And so we want, you know, we want to see, you know, women cross that line of demarcation. Just like I think we, when we educate around consent with students and with coworkers and our employees, like we want it to be simple. We want it to just be like, yes means yes and no means no. And you come make a report and then it's done and we'll take you through the process. And, you know, you have rights. 
you know, we, we want it to be simple, except it's just not. And so it's one of the things I've most struggled with, with regard to Me Too. I think that's one of the achievements of this book is that um, just as an outsider reading it, it, to me, it seemed like a book first and foremost about gaslighting. And I think that that is an experience that is so disoriented for the person being gaslighted, but you are able to communicate it in the book as a whole, I think really can express and encapsulate what that feels like, or at least I was able to identify with that in the times that I've been gaslit myself. And I think that that's very important. And I think that that's something that is important about this book that it, that it can express to explain to people who might not have had that experience, what that felt like when you were talking about like that, that he changed your brain or that he, that you wanted to, to run away from it. You were able to express that confusion very well. Well, I remember reading when, you know, before the election, when people started talking about gaslighting and I hadn't really known the term before that. And, you know, I remember reading an article and thinking, Oh my gosh, like that's what that was. And then just really taking it in and just thinking about how much our society is doing that, you know, in, in general right now. And, you know, one of the primary experiences for me of that situation was just, you know, when I got to a point with this professor where I stopped caring what he thought of me and I stopped caring about my future. Like I just wanted him to stop being in my life. You know, when I really started to tell him like, no, 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 I don't want to, et cetera. And like, he just literally couldn't hear me. And he projected a kind of fantasy onto me <laughs> of what he wanted. And it was like, he erased me. Like he erased my entire existence. He erased my, my voice, like right in front of me. Like he just, it was like, I disappeared. That's one of the things I most remember. And I just felt so helpless in the face of it. Like it didn't, that's part of what I mean about like, too, that it's more complex than just saying no, because you can tell somebody no, you know, a million times and they can just refuse to hear it. And so then what do you do? You know, like, what do you, what do you do? I know you said you wrote this whole separate book about this, but what do you think um, people need to know about Title IX? I think, number one, they need to know that it has a much longer history than 2011 with regard to sexual assault and sexual harassment. Like, I filed a Title IX complaint in the, was like, the, it was 1999 or 2000. It was very late, you know, like, I mean, it was, it was like 20, 20 years ago I filed a Title IX complaint when this was happening to me. And so take that in for a minute. That's at least 20 years of women trying to use Title IX for help on these issues. And, you know, I think we often think, oh, that started in 2011, but it didn't. And, you know, where are we all? Like, I almost feel like we're, I'm like part of a secret history of, you know, Title IX, where we, in two, until 2011, we all thought it was about sports. And now we realize, oh, it's about much more than that. So I think that's one thing. But, I mean, I feel very conflicted about Title IX I think it's really important what the Obama administration did with respect to Title IX because it forced colleges to contend with rape culture on campus. It makes me really angry that, you know, we had to have the Obama administration threaten universities with losing their federal funding 
to get them to contend with it and that we had to have all these national scandals to have universities contend with it. You know, in that sense, I think Title IX serves an important legal role for women. Like we need that policy in place to force universities to contend with rape culture on campus and to contend with complaints. However, I think one of the downsides of Title IX is that it really forces, it makes the conversation into like a legal conversation. If you want to change rape culture, it can't just be about policy and legalities. And like, you know, that this is part of the problem with our conversations around consent and how we're teaching it. Like we're teaching a legalistic idea of what that is, except we have human people on campus and much more complex situations. You know, so I think there's a way in which Title IX is making people like it's forcing people to contend with it. It's but they're, then they're just checking off boxes. So we're actually not changing rape culture. We're just, you know, ideally Title IX should be a last resort, right? Like we should never get there. Like that's like we don't want to have to use Title IX. Like it should be only in extreme situations. But I think part of what's happened is Title IX becomes the conversation. It shapes the conversation rather than what does it mean to really enact cultural change on this issue? Yeah, I'm, I'm really kind of taking that away from this conversation that we're having here. Um, and just kind of jumping back slightly, you see a lot when people share their experiences, even with the, the Me Too stuff, you see so many people respond in the comments, I would have just done this. I would have just done that as though a predator would be like, oh, I'm sorry, my bad. If you just <laughs> told them, I don't like this, or this isn't fun for me, or like, I'm going to kick you in the nuts, you know? <laughs> like, we have this real... Um, like superhero narrative of how we would respond in the same situation, even though, you know, we all face all kinds of indignities in our lives that we definitely don't always stand up to. And then to, to put the entire power of an institution behind your perpetrator is very intimidating. I mean, that's part of why I'm so aware with my own students. I think one of the other things that this experience took for me in, in some ways is my trust in myself in the sense that I'm so painfully aware of how much power I have over my students in a way though that's almost you know too extreme like I I love my students like I love being a mentor but I'm also so afraid like oh what if I like what does it mean to overstep what, what if my students are afraid that you know they can't come to me or or that they can't say like no or so I do try my best to be a very good mentor, but I think part of like the education we need to have around this stuff is just there are so many people who are not aware of their own power, and we really have to teach people about power and how hard it is. You know, like part of what I couldn't do, like boy, if I could go back, I would love to kick that guy in the nuts. Like that would be so satisfying. Like I would totally do it. <laughs> so. Like, that sounds like a great idea. But, you know, of course, I think if I could have done that, he still would have kept going. Like, I think that's the thing. Like, you can, 
like I did my best eventually to like fight this person off and it just didn't matter what I did. Like it was just wasn't going to stop. And even when I like went to my institution, the behavior kept going, you know, like, I mean, it just, I got to a point where I felt like this man will never stop. Like there is nothing I can do to make him stop. Like he will do this for the rest of my life. And I, you know, I had moments where I believed that. And I think, you know, part of what we're doing is like, we're asking people who are very vulnerable to take, you know, take this person um, who's much more powerful than you and see them as a peer, like as though he's some guy who's hitting you on you in a bar, like some annoying guy. And we, we expect them to be like, shut up, dude, <laughs> you know, get away from me. Like, you can't do that with your professor. I mean, you could, I guess, if you were willing to like risk everything, I guess, you know, it's, it's really hard to get to that place. And so I sometimes wonder like what, especially in these like hilarious, like in a depressing way, human resources things I'm always being forced to do, you know, where they're like, if Brad came up to you, like Brad is your professor, Brad comes up to you like one day after class and is like, hey, you, you look like you've been working out. And then, you know, they're supposed to teach you what you say to Professor Brad, like after that comment. And I'm like, yeah, that's no student is going to be like, that was an appropriate Professor Brad. So, yeah, I think it's really interesting. So I teach undergrads as an adjunct and I, I try to think about this a lot. I think that there's a huge power differential in that I am conditionally white as a Jewish person, but um, I'm a white person and I am teaching mostly minority students or non-traditional students. And I found certain things. I've made message boards on Blackboard that allow anonymous posting to try and let people give anonymous feedback if they need to. Uh, there's Rate My Professor. But when you're a graduate student, you're one of five advisees of one professor, mm -hmm. if you wrote something about that professor, there's no way to do it anonymously. Also, though, there, there's a factor of, especially with graduate school, you know, you're specializing. And there's often only one person, you know, in your specialty. Like, you go to graduate school to work with a particular person. That relationship gets ruined, you know, if, if something makes it precarious if they make it precarious, in some ways you, you may lose, like you may have to transfer or you, you may not be able to graduate, you know, if you, if you can't work that, with that person. And, you know, I think part of what happened with me was just that, you know, often fields are very small or that if you have a particularly powerful person in your program, that's in your field. Like one of the things I faced when I came out of graduate school was this glaring issue of the fact that I did not have a letter from this man. <laughs> and everyone knew, you know, everyone I was interviewing with knew where I went to graduate school. And so suddenly there was this like gaping hole in all of my applications. You know, how in the world do you deal with that? Like you just can't, it's really daunting. And so I was very, very aware that, especially by the time I did come forward, that, you know, I was going to cost myself a lot. Like, there was no way around it. And I did cost myself a lot. I cost myself the field, I think. I didn't know how to maneuver in the field anymore. This is part of the problem with um, graduate school, of course, and all the specializations. But that's another conversation. Yeah, there's just a lot of power involved with academia. It's, it's really not set up in a way to make people who aren't the status quo thrive uh, in terms of 
how you get jobs or how it's so interpersonal and yet we describe it as such a meritocracy. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Is there anything else you'd like to add? You know, I'm really happy to get to have this conversation with both of you and, you know, thank you for having me. And I think just one last thing, which was, so I guess maybe for people who are in this situation, I didn't know that I was going to write the memoir when I started it. Like, I didn't know that I was going to write a memoir. Like, I just started writing and then it turns out that I wrote this memoir. But everyone keeps asking me if it was hard to write. And it is actually has been the most wonderful, liberating thing I've ever done. And it was like I was like, you know, drawing poison out of myself. So I, I'm a big advocate. I tell this to my students of writing and what writing can do, like personal narrative and you know what writing can do to help you process things. And one of the things that made me feel like writing this book was I'm not joking. Like it made me feel all powerful around this experience for the first time. And I really just like, if there was a time when I, I literally put my fists in the air, it was like one morning when my husband got up and he, like, I was like working on the novel, like, like, I mean, on the memoir, like super fiendishly, I was like typing away and he was like walking by my writing chair and I like threw my arms up in the air and I was like, your wife is all powerful because I just felt that way because suddenly I was the person in charge. I had all the power and I controlled the story. And it was the first time I felt like I controlled the story or what happened to me since that happened. And so I really am an advocate of the relationship between, I always have been, but especially after writing this memoir, of the relationship between writing a person's story or using writing to get through trauma. So I would, I would highly encourage it for anyone who is struggling. The book is Consent, a memoir of unwanted attention by Donna Freitas. Uh, how can people find you online? I am really hard to find online, actually. Well, you can just email me. So if you Google my name, you'll come up with my email. And I love hearing from people. I'm not on social media, partly because of my experience. So, um, so yeah, but you can find my email pretty easy. So please write me. Okay. And I'm on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And I'm at uh, Karen. Thanks so much for listening. Yes, thank you. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and Feminist Coffee Hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.